Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We want to be a place where you can own your faith and take next steps in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe your next step is to seek out a community and join a movement group. Maybe it's supporting movement financially for the first time or using your gifts on a volunteer team. Whatever God is calling you to do, our prayer is that you will step out in faith and let Him lead you. For more information about your next step, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Uh, We are going to be in Psalm 63. So if you have your Bibles, there's a Bible around you. That's going to be on page 441 of those Bibles around you. You got your phone. You can start flipping there. And I want to do an exercise with us before we start, maybe because I need this, but also I just know how chaotic and busy our lives can be as we walk in here. So I want everyone to take in a deep breath and just blow it out. This is a space where we can come in and be in the love and presence of Jesus and receive his peace. And I hope that his word speaks to you this morning. So we've been, well, actually, let me tell you one thing that I, Jeremy told me not to forget like five times and I just forgot it. We will be at one service starting next week. So you guys probably already saw that announcement on social media or through email. Uh, For the sake of unity of our community and for the sake of our volunteers, you know, until we get back to some normalcy and Sunday mornings, which are coming, by the way, back at the YMCA, we're gonna be gathering as one community at 4 p.m. So I didn't forget that. All right. Uh, We've been in the series, Learning to Walk, and we've been saying that the Bible uses this word walk as a metaphor for faith that we are designed to walk in intimacy, in unity with God, to walk after him, to walk like him, to walk with him. And we've been looking at these pictures, right? Because we've said that there's a difference between the way Easterners and Westerners, we look at God. We, as Westerners, primarily think in ideas, like God is all-powerful, he's loving, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent. But Easterners primarily think of God in pictures. God is my rock, he's my shepherd, so on and so forth, whatever the case may be. And the Bible is a story, it is a picture that teaches us about God, and I'm so excited about the picture that we're going to unpack today as we continue in our series, Learning to Walk, because we're going to be talking about worship. Worship. So let's just read the psalm, Psalm 63. We're going to read, excuse me, through verses one through eight. It says this, a psalm of David regarding a time when David was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night because you are my helper. I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. Here's our big idea for the morning, for the evening. God alone quenches our soul thirst. God alone 
quenches our soul thirst. Now, typically we'd take a passage and we'd walk through it and we'd methodically take it apart and we'd explain it and illustrate it. And that's actually not what we're going to be doing this morning or er, this evening. Just, I'm going to keep saying morning for the sake of continuity at this point. But we're going to be using Psalm 63 as this jumping off point, this launch point, as we look at maybe the central point of the Christian life, and that is to worship. And I don't know what you think about when you think of the word worship. For me, going to church, basically Christmas and Easter at a Lutheran church with a pipe organ and robes and stuff, that's what I think, thought, used to think of when I think of the word worship. Maybe you think about how awesome our worship is here. You think of Hillsong, you think of a rock band and lights and whatnot. And maybe you just don't really have a thought that comes to your mind when you think about worship. Maybe you've never really thought about that. Maybe it's like a churchy idea that like sounds kind of churchy and there's a million things that could be said about worship, but for the sake of our message today, I want to introduce it with a basic and simple definition that I think will help us on our journey. Tim Keller, pastor, author, theologian, points out that the word worship that we have today is from an old English word meaning worth ship. Worth Ship. And so then he says that worship at its core is seeing what God is worth and then giving God what he is worth. Seeing what God is worth and then giving God what he is worth. Now, I love this definition because it gives us a whole lot of freedom as to the different forms that worship would take in our lives because the reality is worship extends far beyond a Sunday evening but it involves every single part of us. In the beginning, before, at, uh, before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve saw what God was worth, and they gave him what he was worth, their obedience. They saw what he was worth, and they gave him what he was worth. And if we look at the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, we see a picture of humanity with God at the center once again, where we perfectly see God for what he is worth, and we give him our adoration, our praise, our love. We give God what he is worth. And this is why the Bible says that the angels just forever sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, because they see God for what he is worth, and they give him what he is worth. And throughout the Bible, we get these glimpses of these imperfect people truly worshiping. And today we get to turn to a Psalm of David to see what that worship looks like. And the context of this Psalm only makes it come alive and make it sweeter even more. The editor of the psalm begins by saying, a psalm of David regarding a time when David was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, why is David in the wilderness? They don't know for sure, but a very good guess would be that this psalm was written shortly after what we talked about last week. Don, one of our elders, preached on David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. David, this young shepherd boy, has this meteoric rise as he slays Goliath, and then the Israelites rout the Philistines. And so Saul, the king of Israel, who's incredibly handsome and tall and powerful from a worldly perspective, brings David under his wing and he ascends to being commander of one of Israel's army. But then, uh, but then David, he starts winning these battles. 
And he starts getting too much credit in Saul's eyes. And so Saul becomes incredibly jealous. And he becomes so jealous at one point that David has to flee into the Judean wilderness because Saul so hates David now that he brings 3,000 men out to kill him. And so David is in the desert. He's in the barren wasteland. He goes from having everything to having nothing. And now think about David's reality when he writes this psalm. He's being hunted Saul has went from his greatest cheerleader to his greatest enemy. He's in the desert. He has no water. He's thirsty. He also doesn't have enough food. On top of that, he misses his bed. There's definitely not enough shade, and his body is becoming so dehydrated that it's burning up in the sun and drying out. And even if he brought some food into the desert, he had to be on high alert because the jackals and the other animals would wait for any opportunity to snatch any food that would be left over. And on top of that, he begins to hallucinate. He begins to have visions. His mind starts to weaken and he sees mirages. And in all of this, instead of complaining about his circumstances, I mean, this just blows my mind. He turns and he focuses his feelings of suffering toward God. David worships. He sees God for what he is worth and he gives him what he is worth. And if we want to learn to walk after God, to walk like God, worship has to be at the center of our lives. And so we're going to look at two things as we look at the psalm Tonight, we're going to look at the fuel of our worship, and we're going to look at the object of our worship. We're going to look at the fuel of our worship, and we're going to look at the object of our worship. David says the fuel of his worship is this thirst of the soul. David finds himself not just in a desert physically, but a desert spiritually. And see, people in that time period... And in that place, water to them was everything. It was precious. Now, this almost falls on deaf ears for us because we swim in water. We drink water. We water our lawns. We water our hair. We water our plants. We, whatever. We bathe in water. Water doesn't really mean that much to us. But in that region of the world, and especially in the desert region of that region of the world, Water is literally life itself. But another thing that you need to know is that there's actually two types of water that are talked about in the Old Testament. There's dead water stored in cisterns or other receptacles. When I think about this, I think about when I was a kid and I'd play soccer and I'd fill up my water bottle at home and I'd toss it in the grass when I get to the game. And you all know what happens throughout the game, right? It just cooks and bakes in the sun that you come off and you're really exhausted. You've been sweating a lot and you go to drink that water and you're like, this is disgusting, but I guess it'll do. That's dead water, right? It's just been sitting there. And then the second type of water that the Bible talks about is living water. This is fresh water that you would get from streams and brooks coming off of the mountains. This is the picture that every ice mountain and every other type of water bottle wants you to get in your mind when you buy that bottle. It's refreshing. It's living. It's moving. It's a constant flow. It's never ending. This is the water of abundance. And to somebody in the desert, this type of water would have been like gold. 
Dead cistern water, lukewarm soccer water, it does the trick, but living water, that is the water of life. And David is the first to take this idea of living water and use it metaphorically. In Psalm 42, he says, as a deer longs for streams of living water, so my soul longs for you, O God. Oh, I thirst for you, God, the living God. And then David takes that picture and says, that's how I crave you in Psalm 63. Look at verse one and two. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Now, David could easily just say, I'm thirsty. I'm physically thirsty. But in this thirst, he says, I passionately seek you. Even though I'm physically thirsty, what I've now realized is when everything's been stripped out of my life, that my true soul thirst is for you, God. And just think about that picture for a second in your life. Does that describe you? Do you say that to God? When was the last time that we felt that way? Because the fuel for worship is this soul thirst that we all know in this room. We all have it. But just because we have this soul thirst doesn't mean that that soul thirst will drive us to God, to living water. Because oftentimes we take that soul thirst and we run after other things. Listen to these words from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah takes what David uses metaphorically and he uses it literally. He says this, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. See what I'm talking about? These pictures. I love these pictures. And God tells Jeremiah, I am that living water. And not only have you forsaken me, but you have settled for broken cistern water, lukewarm backwash soccer water. And if that doesn't describe the world that we live in right now, I don't know what does. Because I truly believe that a good chunk, if not the majority of our problems in life, stem from misidentifying the solution to our soul thirst. Listen to these words from Cornelius Plantiga. He says this, human desire, deep and restless and seemingly unfulfillable, keeps stuffing itself with finite goods, but these cannot satisfy. If we try to fill our hearts with anything besides the God of the universe, listen to this, we find that we are overfed, but undernourished. And we find that day by day, week by week, year by year, we are thinning out to a mere outline of a human being. Restless, seemingly unfulfillable, And we stuff and we shove and we try to put as much things in our life trying to fill up the thing that only God can do. And I love that picture. We're overfed but undernourished. If that doesn't explain or give us an idea of Americans, I mean, that's just us. We all have a thirsty soul and we will worship But the only thing that will quench our thirst is if we worship 
the right things. Because in the words of Jeremiah, the broken cisterns of our lives, they're leaky. We leak. And so if we have that once over water, it might fill us up for a little bit, but drip by drip by drip, that new house, that new car, that porn, that gambling, whatever it is, will begin to leak. And it might give you a little bit of satisfaction, but that broken cistern of your life will leak and it will leak and it will leak and you'll find yourself empty again. So what do we need? We need a constant flow for that leaky life. We need living water that is constantly flowing in so that we are never empty. And I love this. Because sometimes, if I'm honest, I feel ashamed about how thirsty my soul is. But then I read this text and I recognize that my soul thirst is not the problem. It's just that when I get thirsty in my soul, I have to turn it at the object of worship that will only fill it up. So let's talk about the object of our worship. Verse 1 <laughs> He immediately identifies it. He says, oh God, you are my God. And then look at verse three. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. David says, I can do without life, but I can't do life without the one whose love is greater than life. God has become the object of David's worship. And I know what you're thinking. Well, David, he's like this man after God's own heart. Like, this is a little bit foreign to us. I'm just a mere mortal. This is King David in the Bible. And so he must have always felt like this. But David actually doesn't always feel this way. And whether this is before or after this event, it doesn't matter. It still illustrates the same point. But David knows better than anyone what it's like to chase after things that leak out of his life to be satisfied. David is king. He's comfortable. He has a palace. He's got all the food in the world. He's got whatever he wants. And one of his best friends has a wife that he gets a liking to. And David seeking to fill up the broken cistern of his life, does a thing that he would never imagine doing. And David sleeps with his friend's wife, Bathsheba. He commits adultery. And he's so ashamed and so unfulfilled that he goes and seeks to now get his best friend killed so he doesn't have to deal with the shame in his life. And so first, the broken sister of his life tries to hold sexual sin and doesn't do it. And then he tries to erase the sin out of his life by just killing off his friend. And that doesn't work either. And God wasn't the object of David's worship in those moments. But here's a David who's been stripped of all of his wealth, all of his prestige, and he goes, finally, finally, I can see that in this desert, in this weary land, that you alone, God, can quench my soul thirst. Not sex, not money, not fame, not even being king of Israel, but you alone. This is biblical worship. 
And see, that begs the question, what are the broken cisterns in our life? What is the object of our worship? Because worship is one of the central pillars of the Christian life. It's seeing God for what he is worth and then giving God what he is worth. But whether you worship God or you worship something else, you will worship. And if you worship something else, the Bible calls that idolatry. And then idolatry could be defined as seeing something other than God as worth more than God and giving that thing what God is worth. Idolatry is seeing something other than God, usually something God has created, as more worth than God and giving that thing what God is worth. Can we do a little bit of heart surgery? This is for me as well. We're going to look at the four major broken cisterns in our culture today, the four root idols that most of these idols come out of, and it's this, power, control, comfort, and approval. Power, control, comfort, and approval. That almost everything that we worship that isn't God can be stemmed back into power, comfort, control, and approval. Maybe you worship power. Reflect as I talk about these things because these ones just hit me like a ton of bricks this week. If your worth in life stems from your influence and recognition, if you find your identity in your influence and recognition in the world, you might worship power. Is your greatest fear being humiliated? Do you struggle with anger when you're disrespected for wives and husbands? Is it hard for you to respect your spouse when they disagree with you? Do you need to be the one in control? Do you need to take credit for the work that you do and be recognized for it? Maybe you worship power. Or maybe you worship control. If you are only happy when things go according to your plans, no amen from my wife, and your desires, you might worship control. Do you get fearful when your plans start going another way? Have you ever been thrown into a depression because a certain project hits a hiccup or you get a bad grade on a test and that threatens your academic aspirations? Do you have a struggle submitting to authority? Many times this idol can disguise itself in the people that are most organized and put together and on top of things in our culture. But if things don't go according to that organization and that disrupts the joy in your life, you might need to ask yourself, do I struggle with a control idol? Maybe you worship comfort. Now, we're all in this one because I feel like every American falls into this category. This one could be defined as not being content unless we have free access to a certain comfort in our life. This was David's sin. Do you have a tendency to avoid conflict or difficult situations? Do you turn to Netflix, porn, alcohol, gambling, online shopping, or whatever to numb bad circumstances in your life or to find comfort instead of relying on God? When anxious, do you look towards escapist behaviors? Is your motivation to earn money, to work hard, to get married, simply to secure an easy and comfortable future? You might worship comfort. And lastly, maybe you worship approval. <laughs> I, might, I worship all four of these sometimes, so it's, I'm not doing good. Four for four. What people think about me is the most important part of my life. 
Maybe you're a social chameleon. You gotta blend into every social situation so that you can please everybody. Maybe you live for likes and for clicks and for comments. Maybe you feel unloved or unlovable because you're single. Maybe the greatest joy is other people complimenting you and when those same people are critical of you, it spends you into a spiral. Maybe you live exhausted, constantly trying to keep everyone around you happy because you're a people pleaser, not for them, but for you. If so, you may worship approval. Power, control, comfort, approval. What is at the center of our worship? And as we close, I want to quickly look at an example of Jesus addressing a root idol of the heart. This is an encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. If you've been following Jesus for some time, you know the story. If you don't, I'm gonna try to unpack it for us, but it's in John's gospel, and it's this middle of a hot day. The disciples are off, and Jesus is in the town of Sychar, which is a Samaritan village, and the Jews and the Samaritans don't really associate with each other, and Jesus walks up to this woman who's drawing water from the town well. And Jesus says to the woman, will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman says to him, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, we don't associate with each other. By the way, I'm a woman. Why are you talking to me? And Jesus replied, verse 10, if you knew the gift that God has for you and you knew who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and the well is very deep. Where would I get this living water? And besides, do you think that you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never be thirsty again because it will become a fresh and bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And the woman said to him, give me this water. I want this water. And he told her, this is where he confronts her sin. Go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, yeah, the guy that you're with right now, he's not your husband. And you've had five husbands before him. Do you see what Jesus is doing? The story goes on, but that's all you need to know. And then Jesus says, the Samaritan woman comes up to him and she goes, I've heard that people worship on some mountain in Jerusalem. And Jesus goes, because you've seen me, you've met me, you know that we worship only in spirit and truth. And what is Jesus saying in all of this? The well has become this physical metaphor for him. And he points to that well And he goes, you've been going to this well over and over and over again, and you need to keep drawing water, but I can give you water that will never end. It will be a spring that wells up into eternal life in your life. And then he goes, go get your husband. He goes, she goes, well, I don't have a husband. And he goes, yeah, because the well that you've been going back to over and over and over again is because you so desperately need to have a husband or a boyfriend to know you're loved. But if you love me, You won't need to keep seeking and seeking and seeking out love in the wrong places. Having a husband was not the problem, but going after one, after another, after another. He addresses that. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, if I become the object of your worship, 
the fuel of your worship, which is driving you to these men, will actually drive you to me. Because true worship is pulling our affections, our loves, off of our idols and putting them on Jesus. Try this. Next time you feel that temptation or that beautiful thing that you really want well up in your life and you hear God say, not right now, tell yourself, my soul is thirsting and then place that soul thirst where it belongs. And the place where it should go is Jesus. Jesus was the one who gave up his power. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He laid his power down. Jesus was the one who gave up his earthly comforts. He had no home. He wasn't rich. He lived a simple life. Jesus was the one that gave up approval. People hated him. They flogged him. They beat him. They murdered him. They spit on him. They mocked him. And Jesus, he was the one that gave up control. He said, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. And then when he was on the cross, he said, Lord, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he laid down control. And this is the same Jesus who on the cross cried, I thirst, I'm thirsty so that you and me would never be thirsty again. He became thirsty and he lives right now because he smashed the grave and he killed sin and he rose again and he's living right now. He's here right now. He lives in every single person in this room that calls themselves a Christian so that we might worship in spirit and in truth, which means that worship just smashes out of these walls and into our lives throughout the week. It doesn't stay just here. And when we do that, the soul satisfaction that we cultivate in our lives with a life of worship will be never-ending, constantly flowing. And as Jesus gushes into our lives, he will gush out and we will love people like Jesus. We will live like Jesus. Because the things that's now leaking is not greed, it's not lust, it's Jesus. God alone quenches our soul thirst. God alone quenches our soul thirst. And David says, I can do without life, but I can't do life without the one whose love is better than life. Do you know that love that is better than life? Do you know it personally? If you don't know that love, you don't know life. Seek it with everything that you have until you find it. Let's pray. God, we are thirsty. <laughs> Reminded of this on 90 degree days like today. <clears throat> With the sun beating down, I can only imagine there's some guys in this room that got on their lawnmowers and felt that thirst. There's girls and women in this room that maybe were out in the sun that know that thirst. But Lord, I pray that whenever we're physically thirsty, we would remember that 
our soul is thirsty as well and that you offer us living water that will quench our thirst for all of eternity. God, we love you and we know that we fall short. We know that we worship idols and we don't always worship you, but you are so gentle with us as we looked at the woman at the well with you. You're so gentle. You just say, this is what you've been chasing after, but I am living water. You can come and drink from me. So I pray that we would go there. We would go to the spring of living water. We would go to you, Lord, when our soul is thirsty and that we would abandon all of those things that just leak out of our lives. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection and thank you for your unending love for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We hope wherever you are, this message encourages you to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com.